This is the Flannery Podcast, the 17th episode. Our issue this week, Trump does Tulsa and the Southern District of New York. Stay tuned. We have a special broadcast this week. Two guests, a national renowned lawyer and civil rights leader out of Baltimore, Billy Murphy, and a 30-year veteran prosecutor from the Eastern District of Virginia who ran statewide in Virginia a few years ago, now in private practice, teaching the law to younger minds, and he has a podcast of his own, Gene Rossi. Stay tuned. Trump does Tulsa. Trump chose Tulsa, Oklahoma to rev up the racists who support him, to energize the millions of Twitter ditto head followers that hang on his ungrammatical short prose. Trump decided, by all evidence, it was best to diss blacks in Tulsa and across the nation so he could demonstrate his street cred as the racist they can trust. This is the same playbook that brought him to the West Wing. If you recall how he attacked immigrants, Mexicans, dreamers, Muslims, blacks, women, gays. Tulsa was chosen by Trump for its difficult history of race violence, where whites attacked blacks, burning their homes to the ground in 1921. The date for Trump's rally was another issue. It was chosen to diminish the significance of the date when the union told Texas those in slavery were at long last free. We're talking about the celebration called Juneteenth. Trump could have used the place and the date to reconcile a nation protesting police violence and systemic racism. He could have said never again about the brutal experience of 1921. He could have said it's a shame Texas slaves learned late that they had been freed and how he was gonna work hard for equality now. But Trump's not built that way. He is a hater. He is a racist. It drives me crazy when I hear commentators suggesting that Trump cares at all for anyone or he misunderstands when he cares only about himself. Getting reelected and the spoils of office and favors for his cronies. Trump and General Barr favor a police state to suppress dissent and the worthy reforms that Americans appear to agree is critical necessarily going forward after a recent spate of police violence. Consider what happened in Tulsa and how they slowly responded to the shame of the riot that destroyed so many homes. In 1921, financially successful blacks in the wealthiest black community in the nation in the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma, were attacked by white residents. The racist attack destroyed more than 35 square blocks of that district. Hundreds ended up in hospitals. There were deaths, but the estimates are not reliable. Perhaps as many as 300 died. The seed for this scene of racial violence is an old story. 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a black man, was accused of assaulting 17-year-old Sarah Page, a white woman. Rowland was arrested, and then the rumors began that he was going to be lynched. Whites gathered at the jail. Blacks gathered to prevent the lynching. The sheriff assured the armed black men that he had control of the situation, and they were convinced, and when the black men went to leave, there was a skirmish, a shot, and a fight. This prompted the white riot that I've been talking about of burning and looting. 
Years later, in 2001, imagine how long it took to come to a point where a state commission would consider this problem. A state commission found that the city had, in fact, conspired with the mob of white citizens against the black citizens. Talk about systemic racism going back forever, 400 years. The commission recommended a program of reparations to survivors and their descendants. Another example long buried of systemic racism. This is the city that Trump chose to have his first in-person rally since the coronavirus attacked the nation's will and its health. He knew these facts would be known of the riot and of the day, but doubtless he never considered the city's commission's conclusion favoring reparation. But those have proven elusive as a lot of the remedies offered in exchange for racism have proven to be that is elusive. Trump also chose a date for his rally that raised questions about Trump's racist motives to create a confrontation and affront to persons of color rather than a healing moment in a nation in protest against undeniable police violence against persons of color. June 19, 1865 is the day in Galveston, Texas, that slaves learned belatedly from Union soldiers headed up by Major General Gordon Granger that the Civil War was over and that slaves had been freed two and a half years earlier by President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. It took the surrender of Lee to make the emancipation effective, but it is thought that a messenger was murdered en route to Texas earlier to keep slaves in the dark that they were now free so that the enslavers could get another crop. Of course, the legal condition and the reality of freedom was compromised in every way possible, even after that date of knowledge of their freedom. This date still has been identified as Juneteenth and a date to commemorate the ending of slavery. It is a day of celebration. The history of Tulsa and a day celebrating freedom were grit for Trump's agitprop machine. If it was possible to make this event more complicated, it was the surge in the coronavirus and the Trump team acting as if it was a minor question, sort of like the flu. Harkening back to his notion that this was a hoax. The Republican governor did nothing to protect the people from what was expected to be an incursion of 19,000 MAGA-hatted Trump supporters who wouldn't wear masks or respect distancing. Nor would the Supreme Court of Arkansas enjoin unsafe practices set forth by the CDC. To make matters even worse, Trump was claiming a million supporters were going to descend on Tulsa for his presidential rally, and the campaign was setting up an outdoor venue. But the Wild West show melted through the day and evening by each event that unfolded. First of all, seven Trump aides who were setting up the event were known to have contracted the coronavirus. At least they know it's not a hoax. A woman with a ticket for the Trump indoor sideshow was told she was trespassing and not admitted, indeed was arrested, because she wore a T-shirt that said, I can't breathe, recalling both what happened to Eric Garner and George Floyd. So much for free expression. Best of all was that not a million persons, not 19,000 persons, but only about 6,000 persons filled the cavernous halls of the auditorium for the greatest rally on earth, according to Mr. Trump. The event, in other words, was a bust in terms of attendance, and attendance shrunk just like Trump's favorable ratings did in the polls. 
Trump said not a word about the police violence, you know, a healing word, something that you would expect in these times. He said not a word to quiet racism or to suggest any real reforms that might bring the nation together. In fact, what he did was quite divisive and insightful. Trump shouted, we will never kneel to our national anthem or our great American flag. We will stand proud and we will stand tall. Trump also said, I thought we won that fight with the NFL. And explain this to the NFL. I like the NFL. I like Roger Goodell, but I didn't like what he said a week ago. I said, where did that come from in the middle of the summer? Nobody's even asking. We will never kneel to our national anthem or our great American flag. We will stand proud and we will stand tall. I thought we won that battle with the NFL. Their stadiums were emptying out. Did you see those stadiums? Took them a long time to get you back. A lot of people didn't like that. You know, a lot of people that you wouldn't even think would care that much. I've had people that I said, these are super left liberals and they didn't like In other words, he stands with the police, with their violence, and cares not at all to redress racism. Keep in mind that it is Trump's task force that put in place the recommendation for safe distancing to resist the virus. They put in place testing to study the scope and effect of the virus. Instead, Trump shifts the blame for the virus to China when all reports say that's nonsense. In fact, the word is that our brand of the virus came from Europe, not from China. So he says China didn't tell him in time, but he knew. And he knew it from Dr. Fauci. And there are several other reports of other early warning signals that were ignored by President Trump. He also makes, could we possibly be surprised, racist references, calling it the Chinese virus and, and Kung flu, even as he runs down the real threat of the coronavirus. COVID, COVID, to be specific, COVID-19. That name gets further and further away from China as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. By the way, it's a disease, without question, has more names than any disease in history. I can name Kung Flu. I can name 19 different versions of names. When you test, the, when you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people, you're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. They test, and they test. We had tests that people don't know what's going on. We got this. We got another one over here. The young man's 10 years old. He's got the sniffles. He'll recover in about 15 minutes. That's a case. Add him to it. That's a case. That's a case. He told his team to slow the testing to conceal the scope of the virus. He suggested that the sniffles would make a case when it would not make a case of the virus. In the Talking Head shows the next day, the cleanup crew for Trump claimed he was joking when he said that they were suppressing testing. You heard what he said. Was he joking? Not at all. We are engaged in a debate that has gone on with more and less vitality for 400 years when it comes to race. There's a great trial lawyer, civil rights fighter, and jazz drummer out of Baltimore 
Billy Murphy, who knows this fight because he's black and because he's been in the trenches. You may remember the Freddie Gray case. On April 12, 2015, Freddie, a 25-year-old black man, was arrested for having a knife, and while being transported in a police van, he fell into a coma because of injuries to his spinal column. Six police officers were suspended, but not arrested. Billy was involved front and center with other leaders to force a day in court. The arrests were announced. Now, we're working the latest developments in the police custody death in Baltimore. All six officers involved are now in custody, charged in connection with the death of Freddie Gray. Now, you're looking at pictures here from Baltimore where people were celebrating in the streets. Earlier today, the medical examiner ruled Gray's death a homicide. The state's attorney said Gray's arrest was illegal and that officers ignored Gray's repeated requests for medical attention. Billy, as the family's attorney, spoke. In the last 30 minutes, the family attorney has spoken to the media. They are outraged that there are too many Freddie Gray's. And if Freddie Gray is not to die in vain, we must seize this opportunity to reform police departments throughout this country. We are lucky to have Billy with us to discuss the state of racism in America. Well, I'm so glad that we have Billy Murphy with us today. He's been a leader as a trial lawyer, nationally recognized, and he has been a leader in building a bridge between the races and getting things done positively, affirmatively. And so I thought we'd invite Billy to give us a few reactions to uh, how Donald does uh, Tulsa, if you will. And uh, Billy, I'm glad you could join us for a few minutes. Uh, what is your reaction to where we stand today in the nation? Well, we've got a racist as the president. We've got uh, people who've been added to the Supreme Court because they're not sensitive to race and they believe in the unwarranted expansion of presidential power. Uh, we're getting ready to lose uh, two justices within the next year or so. Uh, the court will be heavily weighted to the right. Uh, that's a really bad sign because of the man who put them in there. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see Roe versus Wade gone, uh, uh, the exclusionary rule gone, uh, the Civil Rights Act uh, tap way down, uh, the ability to prove civil rights violations uh, uh, ruined, uh, 1983 uh, uh, set aside essentially in the ongoing march to weaken it. Uh, we're going to see all kinds of erosions in rights, and it's going to be a constant part of American life because of the spool we have as president for the next 30 years at least. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's we've true. we've got a Congress that's dysfunctional. Uh, nothing can uh, move uh, out of the Senate. Uh, that may change this election cycle because I have a strong feeling that we will get rid of Trump. But the damage he's done to America has just been enormous. And uh, he is a cold-blooded, absolute, unrepentant racist for all to see because he won't come out against it. He won't come out against institutionalized racism. He won't come out uh, against the uh, bigots who are powerful, which is the definition of racism, uh, he, he, he is making his stance clear. And I thought that uh, his recent use of a, of, a, of a Nazi symbol to identify Jews in his latest piece of literature it was just beyond outrageous. I don't care what his explanation is anymore. I mean, it's consistent with who he is. He was raised as a racist. He thinks like a racist. He acts like a racist. And he is a racist. So, Billy, if you had the chance 
to instruct the Congress and the nation, where do you think we should go? And you've said it in some sense as a negative, but given the recent plain and obvious uh, police violence and the list of reforms that people are discussing, if you could choose some reforms that should be legislative and policy across the country, what would they be? Well, let's talk about the cornucopia first, reforms that we need, and then we can prioritize, although each one of them is important. We've got health care discrimination and unavailability. We've got uh, discrimination in uh, housing. We've got it in banking. We've got it in um, uh, every aspect of American life. We've got it in the prisons. We've got it in mass incarceration. Uh, we've got it in the job market. We've got it uh, everywhere you can look. Every industry is infected by the structures that were built during uh, overt racism and they still work as designed back then. And so we got to dismantle a lot of stuff. We got to rethink a lot of stuff. Uh, There's just so many aspects of American life uh, which are rife with uh, overt discrimination. And if you look at the criminal justice system, in November of 2017, the National Judicial Center, which is an arm of the federal judiciary, wrote that uh, in the uh, in the courts across the country, black people get uh, routinely between 20 and 25 percent higher sentences uh, for the same uh, crime, uh, for the same situation. Uh, and that was what the sentence guidelines were aimed at getting rid of, but they've never operated as designed because racism is such a powerful infection that it it's eclipsed uh, rational thought in most of the judiciary. So, uh, there's a cornucopia. As part of the criminal justice system, obviously, front and center right now is police report, uh, reform. Uh, and police reform is easier said than done. And if all we end up doing is making incremental changes, we won't get rid of the racists who are in our midst. Right. Uh, let me give an example of the nationwide problem by talking about Baltimore. Um, a young woman psychologist who had just been well-trained at one of the better schools uh, got a call one day from the police psychologist whose job it was to screen uh, applicants uh, so that unfit people would not join the department. And he was uh, getting ready to have uh, medical leave, and he wanted to hire somebody part-time uh, to do his uh, police interviews. And when she found out that he wasn't applying uh, the proper tests uh, and that his test results were absolutely worthless and that, uh, uh, and she knew this, 40% of uh, any police department's applicants are unfit to be cops. On a national or international level, the number is 8%, but the cops, uh, the, the, the people who want to be abusive cops cluster in the application pool. Mm-hmm. And she found out that he was just letting them all through. Wow. Uh, for 40 years, he was the psychologist. And for 40 years, racist cops got through because the test didn't, uh, didn't weed out racism. Angry cops got through. Crazy cops got through. You name the type of unfitness, it exists in the Baltimore City Police right now. It's a hell of a legacy for one man. It sure it is. It how difficult things are. And even now in Baltimore, we have no mechanism to get rid of the bad cops. We have a police union that's out of control and sets the tone for 
opposing everything. Uh, it, it's a disgrace. We have a monitor in place because we got a, a consent decree. And uh, nothing's going on. There's no systemic, uh, meaningful change because you can't make change that way. You got to get rid of the bad seeds. And they say, well, there's only a few rotten apples. Yeah, but that's not true. Well, but if they stay in the barrel long enough, they spoil the whole barrel. Well, did you notice the what... the second part of, of, yeah. of what, what's been talked about, and they have spoiled the entire barrel. Have you noticed what they did in Minneapolis? They almost followed, in the end, the town council, what you say, that they decided that the police force was so riven with racism that they couldn't do anything else except uh, build and instead a community... Uh, led organization to replace their police department. And what happened there, of course, with, uh, uh, with poor George Floyd uh, is a good example of what is systemic racism across the country. And so when some people say defund, Minneapolis is the poster child for that approach. Do you have any reaction to how around the country people should pull up root and branch this kind of embedded uh, racism? Well, I used to think that uh, Camden was the poster child for uh, <laughs> that kind of police rebuild. Uh, and a lot's been written about it that's positive. But when you read what uh, the, the uh, civil rights movement thinks about it and what the community thinks about it, it's just another uh, uh, police department, same old broken windows philosophy, mm-hmm. zero tolerance, lots of statistical analysis, lots of monitoring. Uh, lots of surveillance of the community. And uh, if that's what we want as a reform, don't count me in on that one. Right, you so, want real reform. There is, there are, the models for proper policing in America are few and far between. And so we've got to carefully craft a new model. And uh, what bothers me is that, although a lot of people have literally leaped into that fray, uh, you can't leap without a well-thought-out alternative to what we've been doing for the past 400 years and how to get the new cops in and the bad cops out. I don't see much talk about that, and that's the sum total of what we need to do. And we have terrible police cultures around the country because these guys have been policing us consistently uh, for white interests rather than policing us the way we want to be policed. Right. And uh, how do you return uh, control to the community over how it is policed? And, and, and really, to do that, you'd have to go back to Africa because black people have never had control in America right. of any of their police departments except every once in a while in some small southern town where blacks control the politics. But those are... Those are infrequent things. The rest of us suffer uh, from uh, white racist domination in terms of how the philosophy of policing has evolved and why there's so little resistance, so little willingness to, to change it, except now. Now, let's talk about now for a minute. You've got a whole lot of people who are just outraged by what they keep seeing. They, they didn't believe us until the cell phone video came. But now it's just one police shooting after another, after another. And I think what just happened with George Floyd uh, was, was explosive. Uh, and we may be looking in many ways at the same kind of 
significant, quick political change in philosophy where a majority of the American people are committed to ending racism. That would that be we exciting. Saw just yeah. a couple of weeks, a couple of years ago with the gay rights movement. I mean, yes. when kids brought home their gay friends, that was the revolution of thought. That was what caused Mama and Papa to say, well, okay. It was, that was the tipping point. Uh, because as long as we treat people in an abstract way, we don't understand that they're just like us. You know, right. mostly average, some geniuses with a liberal sprinkling of fools. <laughs> and uh, as long as America lives separately, uh, where you have all white neighborhoods, like in the South, in all black neighborhoods, then there's not going to be the kind of understanding that people get from being shoulder to shoulder on the job, uh, next door neighbors, uh, you know, social friends, this, that, and the other. And so, uh, I, I, the last but not least on the police front, the big revolution, and we don't know how to counter this. It made things worse in the black community, believe it or not, was the Squad car, the radio-centric squad car. Mm -hmm. Because instead of walking the beat and getting to know good people and bad people in the community so you could more efficiently police, we ended up going from one bad situation to another, to another, to another, which is what motorized police patrolling does. That's what it was designed to do. It's kind of quick response to anything that's wrong. And so the poor fellows who are confined to their squad cars rarely get to know the community. There's just no mechanism for it. And so they don't know that Ms. Jones has one, one son who's bad and, and six who are good. Right. They don't know that. They don't know uh, the intelligence on the ground that friendlier policing would give you so that you can immediately figure out who is responsible for the crimes in the neighborhood. And so if we don't fix that, uh, we're doomed to fail. Now, I, I guess uh, I sound pessimistic. No, I hey, you know, after four hundred years, I don't know how you can be pessimistic. You can be hopeful. <laughs> you can be hopeful for what's going on. You know, in the 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 musical sound of music. Uh, no, South Pacific. There's a line in which uh, it's said uh, you have to be taught. You have to be carefully taught to hate and fear. And they're talking about Polynesian yeah. children there. But they're talking yeah. about persons of color. And from the time that you were a child till now, it must have been a constant meditation about how can this be, unlike what Baldwin says, just, it's, it's not my color, I want what you want, that's all, but, I, but I'm not having access to it because of my color, because of a bias against it. Have you ever boiled down in some way what is the root that causes any society to resist people just based on their color, the way our society has for so many years in this unfulfilled promise of all men and women are equal. Well, you see, that promise was never meant for uh, Africans who were stolen from Africa and forced into bondage and terrorized until they complied. True. Uh, nor woman, nor people without property. Yeah. That's correct. So, so this dream is a is a is an increasingly out of focus dream. And the more we try to bring it into focus, the more distant it begins to look because we're not really changing much very significantly. Uh, look at voting rights. Uh, voting rights have gone backwards under a series of Republican presidents. 
states who have tried to gerrymander successfully uh, the nation's state legislatures. Mm -hmm. How can you get reform out of them if they're artificially gerrymandered? And to make matters worse, the Supreme Court said, in a revolutionary opinion, well, gerrymandering is not within our jurisdiction. Right. Oh, shit. Yes. And so if you care that little about black enfranchisement, I guess enfranchisement is the right word. I think it's a good word since we we don't get to use it a lot. So uh, yeah, I mean, we're so busy suppressing the vote that we don't have time yeah. to enfranchise. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the judiciary was smart enough uh, to stop voter suppression. The Justice Department used to have a division which would uh, 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 determine whether changes in voting rights, anything that affected the franchise, uh, was proper under the Constitution, but then the Supreme Court got rid of the preclearance requirement. And so we can't do that anymore. And so when these laws are passed, it takes two, three years for them to wind up to, to even the, the Court of Appeals. And by the time we get there, the damage is done. The structure has changed. Less and less people are permitted to vote. And th this is this is some sad shit, as we would say in the black community. <laughs> I think you could say shit. it in any community, actually. <laughs> well, so you can see the enormity of the reforms that need to take place and how little most people, including you know the bulk of the white community and the bulk of the black community, understand what needs to be done. And last but not least, until we start teaching the history of America correctly when it comes to what happened uh, to those Africans who were forced into, who were kidnapped and forced into slavery in America, what happened to them? Why, how did we end up here? And America doesn't know that story. No. Uh, black America doesn't know it because it's not taught in school unless you elect a black uh, studies program. Uh, white folks don't know it because it's not taught in school unless you elect a black studies program. Both of these black studies programs give you your first opportunity to learn this shit in college. And most racists are not interested in taking those courses. They're all electives. That's and right. Even in the uh, traditional black uh, colleges, uh, the historically black colleges, it's not a required course either because they're afraid of making the white folks who fund them angry. So if you look all across America, it's not taught in any public school and it's not taught at any level of public school in, and in any university unless it's an elective. Well, so Bill, what goes for American history, you know, when you take it in school, is a fraud. It's not American history. It's his story. It's a story. It's a story that is cohesive and locks in the racism that we seek to rebut and to change. You know, and as a, and as a, a white man myself, if I didn't have an interest in reading and studying these things because of politics and my interest generally, I wouldn't have found any of this. I mean, watching a, a series Roots, which uh, was kind of a uh, maybe it is reassuring in some ways and explosive in others, but not enough to make the changes that are necessary in a society. I think what you've done is you've summed up, uh, you say pessimistic, but I think realistically you've summed up a series of categories of places where there has to be very serious reform and not these light touch things that they've done. 
and we have to inform and educate the nation as to the history of slavery and what blacks have suffered that has not been remedied. And if we don't address it now, we're going to have another series of these things, who knows, months and years from now, which everybody will wring their hands and not do anything. So I want to thank you, Billy, for giving us this uh, analysis of where we stand now, sort of a snapshot of where we need to go, where we might go, where we have to go. Let me give you one faint ray of hope, if I may. Yes. See, young white kids uh, who've gotten to know black kids, both socially, educationally, employment-wise, it's a growing number of kids. And uh, they look at these cell phone video cameras and they're horrified, even more than we are, because to us it's a day-to-day thing, you know? Right. We've got our armor on. We don't react as emotionally as they do. And for the first time, what we're seeing them do uh, is to uh, tell on everybody who's a racist. Uh, you know, some if a co-worker is, you know, enjoying the injection of a racist policy into something, he better be careful because these young white kids are going to tell somebody about it. Correct. And like the, like the pictures in Minneapolis. That was a young person who took that picture of uh, the poor Mr. Floyd being uh, literally suffocated with witnesses all around being recorded. It's, it's just astonishing that anybody yeah, could let that happen. I'm talking about the image now of companies. They're going to tell on their bosses. Yes. They're going to tell on their co-workers. If there's any overt, identifiable racism, you better look out because these young kids are going to tell. And, you know, racism only only works when nobody's watching the store. Right. Now remember what we did in Japan and Nazi Germany after the war. We made them radically change their education system so that they taught that Nazism and the kind of fascism, the emperorism that was going on in Japan uh, was basically wiped out of the curriculum for generations. And because we retained the upper hand because... Uh, you know, Germany was divided. Uh, we made them implement these kinds of policies which radically changed German thought. Now, there's still some right-wing tendencies there. God knows Trump is trying to activate that all over the world. But without that kind of erasure, that kind of commitment to telling students what racism is, why it's wrong, and why it needs to be totally uh, eliminated from American thought and life. And one last thing. We've already made racism a tort, meaning that if we can prove that you had a racist policy of any sort, and again, bigotry plus power equals racism, uh, then we have a remedy in the courts. It's a tepid remedy. But we have never taken the final step of making racism bigotry plus power to implement bigotry to the detriment of others. We've never made that a crime. We need to criminalize racism. I agree. We need to. It'll you know, because the... racists need to live in fear that if they, if, they, if they continue to do this, they will be sent to jail. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, Billy, I want to thank you for taking the time. I just love hearing you talk uh, with the passion that you have about the things that matter to you and should matter to the nation and hopefully are becoming important to the nation. So be well. Thank you, John. How many years we've been friends? 
<laughs> Do we want to count? Um, oh, it's a long time. Uh, about 30 years. I think 30 years, yeah. yeah. I think it's a mutual admiration society. I've always admired what you do in a courtroom and what you do in your community and the people. Well, thank you, and I feel the same way about you because it took a lot of balls for a white man to do what you have done in Virginia. Well, and you're a good man. You you're a good man. I, I tell people I'm from New York, and they ask why did I come to Virginia, and I said I, I think of myself as uh, kind of uh, preaching a little bit. Uh, uh, and, and and we've made some movement in Virginia. You're right. We've made a difference. We need more to yes. do, but we've yes. done some things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, oh, Virginia went for Obama. Can you believe it? Uh, I can now because I saw it. <laughs> Stay tuned. Now let's talk about how Trump does the Southern District of New York. You might say, there he goes again. The Trump Bar Corruption Obstruction Team continues in the Southern District of New York, taking out last Friday at about 11 p.m. U.S. Attorney Berman, who was investigating Giuliani, Trump's finances, Trump, uh, his inaugural committee, and a Turkish state-owned bank. And they replaced U.S. Attorney Berman, at least they declared they were doing so, with a Trump lackey who has never handled a criminal case. Isn't that just perfect? To put someone in charge instead of someone who knows the law, install someone who knows no criminal law because he'd like to be close to home and what? See what it's like to be a U.S. Attorney? Some of us think you actually should prepare for that kind of a job. The pigeon's name is Jay Clayton, heading up the SEC. That's one way to conceal a case to choose someone who doesn't know what he's looking at. Virginia Senator Mark Warner discussed Trump's pattern of obstruction by A.G. Bill Barr. But we do see this pattern where the administration uses Friday night to announce bad news. Um, but this is one more example of why I think Bill Barr has repeatedly demonstrated that he's more interested in being Donald Trump's personal lawyer than he is in being the attorney for the United States of America. Berman at first said he wouldn't budge from his job, that is to leave the position, until his successor was chosen by the Senate. He'd been appointed by the judges and the code said he was good to go until there was a Senate-approved replacement. He was right as a matter of law, and that's what he should have done. On Friday night, Berman seemed to be holding his ground, but the next day he folded. The assistants I've spoken with, meaning former assistant U.S. attorneys, agree that Burma should have stayed in place unless and until the Senate approved the replacement. On Saturday, Bill Barr told Berman that he was being fired at the behest of Trump himself. Trump claimed, however, he had no idea what A.G. Barr, his mouthpiece, was doing, but he trusted him. In other words, it wasn't his order. Some assistants think that Berman should have asked for a letter from the president himself firing him, given that the president denied any involvement in the matter. He still could have stayed in place, but have the satisfaction of having the proof that it was Trump working through Barr on paper. Some are of the opinion that Maine Justice may or may not have had recommendations from the Southern District of New York on certain investigative matters, I've listed several, to go forward. 
as the Justice Department has insisted on approving all political prosecutions from all U.S. attorneys' districts, all 94 districts. In the past, I have to say, the Southern District has indicted whomever they thought should be indicted, and without consulting with Maine Justice. The most significant example of this is former U.S. Attorney Whitney North Seymour, who was the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York. He was a Republican. John Mitchell was the Attorney General. He was a Republican. Seymour approved the indictment of his boss, the Attorney General, without any agreement to go forward from Maine Justice. This example is the reason why I wanted to work in the Southern District of New York on corruption cases, and many others too. I didn't serve Whitney North Seymour, but I served no less able leaders than Whitney North Seymour when I was an assistant U.S. attorney. Now, former National Security Advisor John Bolton wrote a book describing various incidents of misconduct and crime by his boss, Donald J. Trump. He detailed how Trump told Turkish President Erdogan he'd take care of the Southern District New York investigators, replace those prosecutors with his people. And now, this past Friday night, it appears that Trump did just that by firing Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney Berman, another contract hit by the Dapper Don. Trump has said that he's a big fan of President Erdogan, I'd say. A big fan of the president? Jay Clayton, he would like to be Berman's successor. Presently at the SEC, he has other entanglements. Trump's financial dealings, for example, with Deutsche Bank are extensive. They've been looked at in the Southern District. Jay Clayton has represented the Deutsche Bank. Coincidence? Who knows? Hardly. Certainly it's a conflict. You might ask, is anybody going to impeach Barr or conduct investigations? The House Judiciary Committee under Chair Jerry Nadler has scheduled hearings. But I thought it might be interesting to talk to another federal prosecutor, an old hand of 30 years in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia, Gene Rossi. A few years ago, he ran for office as lieutenant governor. This was one of his appearances. So let's get right to it. We're lucky to have with us today Gene Rossi, a former prosecutor of 30 years experience who has his own podcast except during the coronavirus. You may have heard the Gene Rossi uh, podcast at WJFN. And we thought we'd talk today about the situation in the Southern District of New York. That is that uh, the president, by means of his mouthpiece, um, Barr, his attorney general, has fired the U.S. attorney Berman in the Southern District of New York. Hi, Gene. How are you doing? Oh, John. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. No, it's good to have you. Uh, so you sent me a message asking me if my head had exploded as a result <laughs> of firing uh, uh, Berman. Uh, I suppose that that reflected somewhat your own reaction. Uh, what is your reaction to them firing Berman in well, New York? Well, my head hasn't exploded, but the little hair I had is now completely gone. <laughs> but I, I do want to say this. Uh, Bill Barr is, is no Elliot Richardson, and he's not even John Ashcroft, two attorney generals who did, did the right thing. Of course, Elliot Richardson was in Watergate, refused to take the orders of the president. And uh, 
John Ashcroft refused to uh, sign an executive order or take action to continue the FISA warrant process. Uh, but what really troubles me the most, John, and you've been talking about this for the last three years, when you have an attorney general whose allegiance is to the president of the United States and not to the American people, this is what happened. And the Friday night massacre, June 19 of 2020, was probably the lowest point in Barr's career as attorney general. And that is saying a lot, given his uh, handling of the Mueller report. And here's why. I did some research on the Southern District of New York. And you probably know all this, so I apologize. <laughs> yes, but, we well, you know, we are the patriots of that office, and we feel this, very bruised right now. Well, listen to this. I learned this, and I learned it from a an op-ed written by Jim Comey that was in the Washington Post today. The Southern District U.S. Attorney's Office was established before the Department of Justice was established under the presidency of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> and, and it's acted it, that way ever since. <laughs> absolutely. And, and here's the thing about SDNY. And I came from the Eastern District of Virginia. We think we're the best U.S. Attorney's Office. It's an excellent I, office. Yes. I understand the Southern District has their own view. But let's put it this way. <laughs> the sovereign in, district of New York, Gene, please. <laughs> or at least in the top two, three, or four U.S. Attorney's Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But I have a lot of respect for SDN1 prosecutors, you especially. I had a couple of cases there. I represented Stormy Daniels, former attorney. I had to go up there and meet with four of the best prosecutors I will ever meet. But here's the thing about SDNY. It used to be called the Mother Court. It was established in 1789, but from 1789 until 1906, it was a corrupt office, believe it or not. Right. And Teddy Roosevelt didn't like that, so he appointed in 1906, um, uh, he was Secretary, Henry Stimson. Correct, yes. And Henry Stimson became a person who ran SDNY like the way the Justice Department should be writ, uh, run now, without favor or promise, without any predilection towards any side. R.D. or independent, Stimson cleaned house. He got rid of all the political hacks, and he made the SDNY what it is today, an office that under any administration, and you know this, John, those line prosecutors, including former AUSA John Flannery, they didn't <laughs> care they didn't care who the target was. They well, let, let, let me stop you for a second, Gene. Yeah. There, let me give you a good example that's more modern. Uh, Whitney North Seymour was a Republican U.S. attorney appointed, and uh, his boss was John Mitchell, the Attorney General of the United States. And Whitney North Seymour indicted his boss, John yeah. Mitchell, for crimes in the Stans prosecution in the Southern District of New York. He gave no notice to Maine Justice that he was doing it. He discussed it with the assistants and said, this is the right thing and this is what we have to do. That's how independent. And when some people said to him, you know, they hated being criticized, he says, well, uh, if you want love, go get yourself a puppy dog. <laughs> he says, service is its own reward. And I was, I was clerking in the courthouse in the Second Circuit 
when they tried Mitchell Stans. And I was invited by the judge uh, who was trying the case because his chambers was next to mine. The Court of Appeals and the District Court were close together. And I sat there and the witness was John Dean. And I never heard a more persuasive uh, witness in my life up to that time. Oh my God. So that's an example of the independence. Oh now, I, I have a question for you. Yes, in the sir. recent book by Bolton, he claims oh. that Trump promised to Erdogan that the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York were not his people and that when he had a chance, he would have his people in the office. Uh, what, what's your reaction to that in the context well, of what happened it, to Berman? It, it's what I was just going to say is you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize why Bill Barr acted the way he did during the Friday Night Massacre. There's one major reason. They are investigating issues that come very close to the White House, especially Donald Trump. They are looking at, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, they are looking at the state-owned bank of Turkey, I forgot the name of it, Hawk, and that's where the president of uh, Turkey is very anxious about that. They are looking at Lev and Igor, that, that indictment. They're looking at Rudy and his involvement in various things. They're looking at the Trump inauguration committee, whether foreign money went into that organization. And let's not forget this. At Michael Cohen's guilty plea in August of 2018, he alleged that Trump was a conspirator and it was in the statement of facts. So the only reason Donald Trump has not been indicted by the Southern District of New York, and you know this, is a stupid OLC memo that says you can't indict a sitting president. If Donald Trump were Donald Smith, John, you know he would have been indicted the next day after Michael Cohen had pleaded guilty. So all those things, the perfect storm, caused the president to get very anxious and scared and he ordered, he ordered Bill Barr to replace Berman because he's realizing, the president's realizing, that Berman is not this wacky who's going to do whatever the president wants him to do. He is what a U.S. attorney for the Southern District, actually of any district, should do. Well, if, if Eugene Rossi were the U.S. attorney or I was the U.S. attorney, I would disregard the OLC memo and rely upon the Constitution that presents no impediment to prosecuting a president, as found by special counsel, both during the Watergate affair and the Whitewater as well. There were opinions in both cases that the Constitution presented no bar, no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, the, U the OLC memo came out in 1973, right. and it was politically driven for one reason to protect Nixon and to throw Agnew under the bus because the District of Maryland, that U.S. Attorney's Office, prosecuted Vice President Spiro Agnew for a lot of tax crimes. And this is, a lot of people don't remember this. Spiro Agnew entered a guilty plea. It was a nolo condendere, but it was uh, tax crimes for taking bribes when he was in the White House and when he was a governor of Maryland. Now, so that's why the OLC was written. Well, let, let, me, let me say something else about that. The courts had to deal with an attack by uh, Spiro Agnew that they couldn't prosecute him unless they impeached him first. And the court said that that was not necessary. 
and which is very interesting. Now, some people, including the Justice Department, tries to distinguish the difference between a vice president and a president. But I'll tell you, there's like a, uh, a hair breadth uh, between those two items when it comes to the legal question. Let me ask you a personal question. Are you, are you braced? <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm one of these people... You can ask me almost anything. I believe and that. I will, I will answer it. You can you can guarantee that. Now, Gene, uh, you described uh, winning a bronze medal running for lieutenant governor <laughs> a few years back. And uh, I know that you're very concerned about public issues and that you've had your criticisms of uh, those who prevailed in that election over you in the primary. Uh, do you have any plans in the future? Or are you going to serve uh, the public's interest in private practice? Uh, politics is in my blood, just like prosecution and, and the law. And God has not done with me yet. I uh, got the bronze medal, as you mentioned. I came in a distant third in a field of three running for lieutenant governor. And there are 60,000 people who voted for me. And they're very proud today that they voted for me. Uh, I am thinking about um, maybe not this 2021, but... Uh, in the next couple of years, either Attorney General of Virginia or maybe Governor of Virginia. Well, I know that if you do run, they're going to have a candidate that's going to talk straight and is a person of integrity. And I've enjoyed talking to you today, Gene, and sharing your views about the disaster in New York with the firing of U.S. Attorney Berman. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Okay, thanks. I have one final Father's Day note. Stay tuned. You might say that uh, this is a good day to ask about on being a dad. This is Father Day when I make this uh, Father's Day when I make this podcast. Perhaps most fa- fathers think less about what we do or did as a dad or father ourselves, and always think more about what our fathers did to make our lives as we've lived it possible. At least that's what I'm thinking as our as our children are building their own lives. My dad always said he'd be successful as a father if I could do better as his son than he did. The next generation should always do better, he said. Well, my dad was a carpenter, electrician, and plumber. I couldn't do any of those things better. But my dad was good at math, and he sat with me and taught me math that no one was learning in school at the ages when he was teaching me. I wanted to know. I was curious because I was a self-styled Sputnik kid, and I knew math was the entry point to rocket science, or at least physics. My dad, John, was proud I went, to pa- went past high school and, and that I was a lawyer and that I did politics. He had no use for politicians, but he contributed to one of my political campaigns. This I discovered after he passed when I was going through his things. I wish we could have had more conversations when I got older and knew more to discuss what matters in life. He died at 68. Still, it was too young for him to go. My dad and mom and younger brother Charles are all gone, so I'm thinking of them today. I think of those fathers killed by police, not with their families this Father's Day. I think of those fathers and mothers and children killed by the virus. While we celebrate those dads with us, let us remember those we've lost and all those family members and friends we've lost with this heartfelt song by no less than Phil Collins. (laughs) 